your life, Lord. Open our spiritual eyes and ears this morning to see that truly you are the Son of God. I pray for your blessing upon the message this morning and upon our dear Pastor Robin. Bless him and bless us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So it'd been a tough day for Jesus that day. Um, first, he'd heard that Herod had executed his cousin, John. Then when he tried to get away by himself to grieve and to pray, he'd been inundated with people, crowds of people. And so he had, he had healed them and fed them and taught them before sending them off home for the night. Now night was approaching, the crowds were on their way home, and Jesus still hadn't been able to find the time to do what he'd set out to do that morning. So he tells the disciples to go off home, and he finally has the opportunity to spend time alone with his father. Up on the mountaintop, he spends a significant amount of time just concentrated in prayer, throughout the evening and on into the, in through the night. And it's a significant turning point in Jesus' ministry. He's getting ready for the journey into the Gentile areas. And with John's execution, the shadow of the cross is beginning to fall over his ministry. Meanwhile, while Jesus, Jesus is alone on the mountain in prayer, the disciples are having a tough time out on the Sea of Galilee. Of course, Sea of Galilee isn't really a sea. Like we, we know this, right? It's not really a sea. It's a lake. Uh, it's about 21 kilometers long by 13 kilometers wide. Under good conditions, you should probably be able to get from one side to the other in a few hours. And actually, the disciples weren't even, probably not even trying to get from one side to the other. Most of the... Um, Bible maps put the, uh, the place where Jesus fed the 5,000 a few kilometers south of Capernaum. So they're trying to get back to C Capernaum. <clears throat> and they're just going to travel a few, mile, few kilometers along the shore. Assuming all went well, they should have been home. You know, a couple of hours after sunset. But they weren't home. So it's when Jesus came... When evening came, Jesus was there alone, but the boat was already considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, my best guess is that after they set off, another one of those unpredictable winds that uh, Galilee is known for came up and blew them out into the lake. They were trying to go along the side of the lake, got blown out into the lake, and um, they were trying to wake, make their way back clearly with limited success. Now, um, they dug up one of these, one of these boats in the 1980s <clears throat> from the silt along the side of the Sea of Galilee. So they had four oars and then another oar that acted like a rudder. So you can handle them well with five people. And at least four of the disciples were experienced fishermen who knew their way around boats, Peter, Andrew, James, John. So the boat was in good hands. But even in good hands, a storm at night can be scary. 
Now, I'm assuming it was summer because you, it's unlikely to have a large group of people meeting outdoors in the wintertime. So then dawn would have been about 5 a.m. So they've been rowing for like eight hours at this point. They've been blown out into the middle of the lake. They're trying to row their way back. John tells us they're about five kilometers out. Now, at this point, I'm sure the non-sailors among the disciples, like Matthew, the tax collector, are probably hanging over the side, throwing up and asking, why do we have to spend so much time traveling by boat? Why can't we just walk like normal people? So it's about four in the morning. Your body's at really low ebb between like two and four in the morning. If you go, you know, our, our son had problems with asthma uh, when he was younger. And that's when um, the uh, emergency rooms of, of hospitals fill up with asthma patient, patients that time in the morning because all the systems in your body are all at their lowest ebb. So it's, you know, you, everybody's body's at the lowest ebb. It's pitch dark. The wind is strong. The waves are pretty high. On a lake like Galilee, you get these short, choppy waves. Um, people are hanging over the side, throwing up. The guys on the oars are dead tired. And then just when it seems like it couldn't get any worse, they see a shadow coming towards them over the, over the waves. And verse 26 tells us that the disciples were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Now imagine that the guys on the oars, tired as they were, started rowing for all they were worth to get away from this apparition, right? But it was no use. It just kept, kept, kept gaining on them. Now we know that the shadow coming towards them is Jesus. But that's because we've read verse 25, right? Um, before, you know, 20, 25 comes before 26. So we know it's Jesus. They didn't. Um, they didn't have that. So they've never seen anyone ever walk on water before. And they're terrified. In fact, almost every time Jesus does something miraculous for the first time, the disciples' first response is either fear or amazement or both. You'll sometimes hear preachers criticize the disciples for not knowing it was Jesus walking on the water. But be honest, if you hadn't read this passage of scripture, what would you think if you were out on a small boat in a storm-tossed lake in the dark and you saw what looked like a person walking towards you on the water, right? Let's be honest. So in this case, the, um, the disciples' fear of sinking and drowning is quickly overtaken by another greater fear. Fear of the unknown, especially a spiritual unknown. So I'm guessing that when they heard what sounded like Jesus' voice coming out of the darkness and saying, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Their first response wasn't to say, hey, it's Jesus. I was wondering when he was going to turn up. Unusual way of arrive, but hey, he's known for doing strange things, right? No, it's Peter who responds. Peter, the talkative one, Peter who blurts things out without thinking too much. And the first thing, words out of his mouth are not, hey, Jesus, glad you can, you can make it. Can you grab an oar? We need all the help we can get here. First words out of his mouth are, Lord, if it's you. We're at the midpoint of the story. 
Scriptural narratives are often structured so that the main point of the story is in the middle. And the middle of this narrative holds the, quest, the, the words, it is I, and Peter's response, if it's you. I want to suggest that we can sum up the main issues of this passage in two questions. Who is Jesus and how do we respond to him? So who is Jesus? Verse 27 says, Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. The word translated, it is I, are the Greek words ego eimi. Who, who here actually says, it is I? We all say, it's me, right? Right? So that's, let's, just, let's, just go, let's just go with, it's me, all right? That's, that's how we talk in normal English. So, so he hears Jesus saying, it's me. And Peter seems to at least tentatively identify Jesus' voice. But ego eimi has other meanings as well. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate Exodus in Exodus 3, Exodus 3, where God identifies himself as I am. And there's no question that John in the, his gospel explicitly uses it that way to point to Jesus' divinity, what we, we were just singing about a number of times this morning. And I'm sure as Matthew was writing his gospel, he was aware of the implied claim of Jesus' words. But here, in the middle of the night, out on the lake, um, I don't think Peter was reflecting on the theological depths of that phrase. He was just happy to hear what sounded like his master's voice saying, it's me, take courage, don't be afraid. So this Advent season, we've been looking at the difference that Jesus is coming makes in people's lives. We've looked at the hope that Simeon and Anna found in meeting Jesus in the temple. We've looked at the love that the Samaritan woman experienced in meeting Jesus at the well, and the joy that Matthew, sorry, that Martha and Mary experienced at Jesus' coming and raising her, their brother. So in this story, first of all, Jesus is the one who comes to us with words of reassurance in the midst of turmoil. We may not realize it's Jesus speaking to us. Like the shape that was looming out of the darkness, it's not always easy to identify that Jesus is with you, even if you've been walking with him for a, for a long time. Sometimes he speaks in our hearts. Sometimes he speaks through scripture. Sometimes he speaks through the words of others. But I want you to notice what it is that comes before Peter hear Jesus' words of reassurance. What comes before those words is fear. Verse 26 says the disciples were terrified and cried out in fear. And in a way, those are the prerequisites for hearing Jesus say, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. I mean, if you're sitting at home one evening, quietly reading a book with a cup of hot chocolate in your hand, and I came into the room and said, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. <laughs> you probably look at me a little strangely and point out that unless you're mistaken, there's actually no reason for you to be afraid in the first place. 
On the other hand, if you just spent an hour and a half hunkered down in your bathroom with 18 other people, as we did in 2014, while a serious firefight was going on outside after a car bomb went off, if you were hiding in your bathroom and you heard multiple pairs of feet coming up the steel fire escape at the back of your building, and then you heard people pounding on the door, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid, would be welcome words. Actually, that's not what they said. What they said is, it's the police, open the door. And then they escorted us out. It's not until you're in a really difficult spot that you need to hear those words. Take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. It's not until you're afraid that you need words of reassurance. And what the disciples learn, and what we learned, is that no matter how difficult the situation, whether you're in the middle of the lake, in the dark, in a storm, or hunkered down in the, bath in the bathroom, praying that you'll make it through this firefight alive, Jesus is right there with you, speaking words of comfort. Next thing Jesus says is come. Jesus is the one who calls us to come. For a number of years in Canada, I was part of a uh, mobilization ministry in trying to encourage people to get involved in cross-cultural ministry. And during that time, I would often say that Jesus never sends anyone anywhere. Um, I would often get some pushback from that. Uh, people go, well, doesn't Matthew 28 say, go and make disciples? Well, apart from the fact that I'm sure some of you are aware that the main verb in that sentence isn't go, it's actually make disciples. And um, the verse is better translated, as you go, make disciples. There's no reason I said that, I, I still, still do say that Jesus never sends anyone anywhere. In Matthew 28, when Jesus said that, he was limited by his incarnation to be in one place at one time. That's no longer the case. So Jesus doesn't send people into ministry. He invites them to come and join him where he's already at work in the lives and hearts of people who don't yet know him. The theological term for that is prevenient grace. God is already at work in the world and he invites us to come and join him. So Jesus' call on our lives, on your life and on mine, isn't to go anywhere. It's the same call as he gave to Peter out on the lake. His call is to come. To come out into a situation that is often intimidating and sometimes downright scary. He doesn't send us somewhere he isn't. No one ever takes Jesus to somebody else. He calls us to come and join him somewhere where he's already at work. Verse 29. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Cried out, Lord, save me. So you get out of the boat or you get on a plane or whatever the appropriate response is to Jesus' call to come. And it's not long until you, you feel yourself sinking. It could be the culture, the language, the workload, all three, and then some. 
But it's almost a given that from time to time in our journey with Jesus, we will feel ourselves sinking. Remember, there's, there's a storm going on, right? Peter isn't going out for a walk in the pond, right? Strolling the pond. There's a serious wind blowing over about five kilometers of open water for about eight hours. Uh, so we're looking at some decent sized waves here. And as Peter begins to sink, he doesn't slide gently into calm water. He's being smacked in the face by a wave every four or five seconds. And verse 31 says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Small wonder then that from very on, early on in the church, the church used drowning as a metaphor for sin. And so Jesus is the one who saves us by pulling us up out of the depths. Jesus is the one who saves us, not just in terms of our initial salvation, but in terms of holding us up when we can't hold ourselves up any longer, when we think we can't stand it anymore, when we feel ourselves slipping under. Jesus is the one who reaches out and catches us. The final statement about Jesus' identity comes in verse 33. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, when they said that, they probably weren't thinking what you think they're thinking. Um, it wasn't until after the resurrection that the believers really realized and recognized that Jesus was God in the flesh. So when he said, truly, you are the son of God, they were probably still thinking of him as a specially gifted messenger from God. And even though the Gospels were written a generation after the events they record, it's actually a mark of the historical accuracy. They don't read post-resurrection understandings of Jesus back into the disciples' experience. Instead, what we have is a growing understanding of his identity as they see him perform miracles and come back again and again to the question of who is this person? And each time the answer deepens. So Jesus is the son of God. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who comes to us and calls us to come. And he is the one who speaks peace and reassurance into our lives in the midst of turmoil. How about how we respond? One of the commentators has written that Peter is both a good example and a bad example. I don't think so. I think Peter is just an example. Example of the reality of faith. So we'll go back over the same ground again. And this time we'll look at Peter's responses, okay? So the disciples see a shadowy form approaching over the tops of the waves and they're terrified. Then they hear Jesus' voice out of the darkness saying, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Now, if this story were told in a contemporary Christian movie, then I suspect at this point there'd be a spotlight on Jesus, the music would swell, and all the disciples would relax. Thankfully, the Gospels are more real than Hollywood. Because even after Jesus identifies himself, the disciples still aren't at peace. You can hear it in the way that Peter responds tentatively to the voice. Lord, if it's you, he's not sure. He's torn between wanting to believe that it really is Jesus out in the water and his fear. Both have a call on his life. And the question is, which one is he going to listen to? So he does the New Testament equivalent of Gideon putting out, putting out a fleece. He says, if it's you, then tell me to come to you in the water. And so if he steps out of the boat and his foot goes a couple of feet into the water 
uh, he'll know it's not really Jesus out there and he can climb back in the boat, he'll be okay. But if he steps out of the boat and the water holds him up, he'll know it really is Jesus calling him. And the one who's taught them in chapter 10 to heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, just like their master, can also call them to walk on water, just like their master. There is, however, one condition. He has to get out of the boat. John Ortberg has written a book about this passage called, "If you want to, this is the whole title, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. Um, in it, he equates the boat with our safe places, the places that make us feel secure. Now, you may wonder how safe a small boat is in a howling gale, but it's safer than you think. The fast net race is the oldest long-distance offshore race for sailboats in the world. It's a 1,000 kilometers from the south coast of England to the fast net rock of the south coast of Ireland and back again. The 1979 race was a disaster. 306 sailboats took part. Only 86 finished. 24 were abandoned, of which five sunk. 100 were knocked down, so the mass was parallel. It's called a knockdown um, to the water. It came back up again. 77 of those that were knocked down, at least once, were rolled right over. 15 people, 15 people died. The fact that most of the abandoned boats survived the storm, even after their crews had taken to life rafts, and that some boats survived when their crews didn't, led to a new directive in sailing circles. The only time to abandon your boat is when you have to step up into your life raft. The only time to abandon your boat is when you have to step up into your life raft. Go to any course, they'll teach you that. So as a sailor, it strikes me that the text says that Peter got down out of the boat. If he was going to be obedient to Jesus' call, he had to step out of the safety of the boat and into the danger of the waves. And the reality is that following Jesus' call to come is always a call out of comfort and security and into, if not danger, at least insecurity and uncertainty. So if from time to time, you feel insecure and uncertain, it's okay. It's okay to feel insecure and uncertain. You might even be feeling insecure and uncertain right now about what you're supposed to be doing, about where you're supposed to be going, what the future holds for you. It's okay. That's part of the call. That's part of being willing to follow Jesus out into the storm. It's part of, it's part of saying, okay, if that's really you, Jesus, then call me. But it isn't enough to just step out of the boat. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus. It says, then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. Going great here. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. I had a conversation one time with someone in this situation. After much prayer, they had made a decision to quit their job and make a career change. They were sure 
it was God's will for them to do this. But it had been six months, and there's still no signs of any doors opening. And it was diff getting difficult to keep their eyes on Jesus. I wonder when it dawned on Peter just what he was, what he was doing. You know? At what point did he say to himself, what was I thinking? People don't walk on water. What was I thinking? And at that point, he started to sink. And that's when Jesus reaches out and grabs him and says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Note that he doesn't say, you of no faith. He says, you have little faith. Peter had faith. In fact, he had more faith than all the other guys back in the boat, right? I mean, he was the one that was out there walking on the water. But it takes faith to stay on top of the water. It takes trusting Jesus, even when your brain is going, I shouldn't have done this. This, is, this isn't really very smart. The word used for doubt here means having a divided mind. It's the same idea as our English expression to be in two minds. And that was Peter's problem. That's always our problem, right? None of us has perfect single-minded faith all the time. We may have it in one area of our life, but not in another. Or we may have it for one time of our life, but not another. No one has perfect single-minded faith, faith for all situations at all times in their lives. That's just a statement of fact. Even Jesus struggled. In the garden, he struggled to follow his father's call to come. And it's when we're in situations like that, that Jesus reaches out and grabs us by the hand, sometimes by the scruff of the neck, and he hauls us to safety. So at the end of the story, there's this picture of peace. Just in case you thought I'd forgotten what the theme was this morning. The winds have died down. Disciples are overawed by what's just happened. And I chose this passage because of that picture at the end. I felt it addressed the topic of peace. But I as I began to work my way through it, um, I realized that the text was leaving me in different ways than what I expected. That happens to me a lot. Um, I can't count the number of times I've started with a passage thinking, oh, we'll talk about this. And the passage goes, no, you're going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, so, so Jesus coming to disciples in the midst of the storm did bring them peace. But what I've learned from this passage is that peace comes as we recognize who Jesus is and discern his presence in the midst of the storm, even if it's hard to recognize. Peace comes as we listen for his voice above all the noise and confusion that's going on around us. Peace comes as we are obedient to his call, even when that call seems to be taking us into a place of more turmoil, not less. And in the end, peace comes as we entrust ourselves to his care and allow him to be our savior, not just once, but every day. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you that we can hear your call. Thank you, Lord, that you 
allow us to, to walk with you. And yet, Lord, sometimes we recognize that even in the midst of walking with you, we are confused and distracted by the noise and turmoil around us. Lord, thank you that it's in those times that you come to us and say, don't be afraid, it's me. And you save us. Sometimes you save us, Lord, by changing the situation, pulling us out of the situation. Other times, Lord, you save us by giving us the faith to stand on the water with you. Either way, Lord, you are our Savior. Not just the once, but every day. Lord, give us the grace, I pray, to hear your voice. To hear your voice saying, don't be afraid. It's me. And to hear your voice saying, come. Lord, you're calling each of us in different ways to different things. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have of cooperating with you. Lord, help us to hear your come and to respond to it. Even if it seems sometimes irrational because it's in responding to your come Lord that we draw closer to you and you draw closer to us Lord we pray this morning for Alexei Lord we thank you that he is in recovery he's out of the ICU continue to pray for, for him and his family that you would um, bring him back to full health Lord, we pray for Ghislaine, um, a friend of uh, Daniel's who's in hospital with kidney failure. Pray, Lord, that you would meet his needs. Lord, we continue to pray for Ukraine um, after a huge bombardment again in the last few days. People are struggling. Um, Lord, Lord Jesus, give them grace, we pray. And next door in Iran, Lord, um, as things continue to be really um, unstable and the government continues to arrest people and execute them for being involved in the protests. Lord, we pray an end to that. And Lord, we pray for the Christmas outreaches. Thank you for the, the woman's lunch yesterday and how well it went. We pray for our own events on Christmas Eve and for AIK's events. And I know the, the Russian church and the Iranian churches are doing um, things as well, Lord. So pray that as we glorify you and lift you up, that you would draw people to yourself. In your name we pray. Amen. just mention as the worship team is leading us uh, maybe you feel like you're sinking in the waves or you know somebody who needs prayer